Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When we think of powerful and influential first ladies, Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton tend to come to mind before the often underestimated Lady Bird Johnson. Lady Bird was Lyndon Johnson's trusted political advisor and strategist, and beyond beautification projects, she initiated an ambitious national environmental effort. Julia Swig had access to hundreds of hours of audio diary entries in Lady Bird's own voice, leading her in a new book from Random House called Lady Bird Johnson, Hidden in Plain Sight, to make the case that her subject was an accomplished politician and businesswoman in her own right. Julia Swig is an award-winning author of books on Cuba, Latin America, and American foreign policy. She served as senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations for 15 years and is currently a senior research fellow at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. She's also a producer and host of In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson, an eight-episode podcast that's produced with ABC News. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to our show now. Hello. Hello. Happy to be with you today. Now, your background is in foreign policy, and you've written books, as I said, about Cuba, Latin America. Why did you decide to write about Lady Bird Johnson? This seems like a major departure. It's a major departure and an excellent question. And, you know, it kind of boils down to two things. One, after working on one set of issues for a very long time, I felt that I needed to teach myself something new. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to grow as a a thinker and a writer and a historian. That's one. Two, and also that that coincided with the Obama administration's uh, commercial and diplomatic opening with Cuba, which is something that I had advocated for and worked very hard for behind the scenes for many years. So I felt like I had a mission accomplished in a certain sense. But then also working in foreign policy for as long as I did, you know, I often found myself to be the only woman in the room. And that got me thinking about wanting to get my arms around the topic of women and power mm. broadly, but I didn't have a subject. And I only found Lady Bird as my subject when I discovered that she had kept this vast, you know, I call them the other LBJ tapes, this vast documentary record of her time in the White House that had was largely unexcavated. So I was a woman in search of a woman and mm-hmm. found Lady Bird, who's of course associated with the American president, most associated with the word power. And it all just came together, Leonard. And you and, were at and the and LBJ School it. of Public Affairs. So uh, the, that, did that give you access? Well, no, that's, a, that's an affiliation. It's non-resident. I'm t- speaking to you from right outside of Washington, DC. Um, the The access is not unique to me, but I think what is unique is that I, as far as I know, I'm the only person that's listened to all of the 123 hours and read all of the 1.700,000 words. Um, Luckily, the the library, the LBJ library, started releasing the fully unredacted tapes and transcripts right when I started sniffing around the, the Lady Bird topic as a potential topic for my next book. So that's an awful lot of material, both written and uh, and spoken. Um, uh, yes, it is. But it's very compelling material. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to stick with it. I mean, it, Why? it all it go on. Sorry. No, finish your thought. No, my thought was that it, it was compelling because she's such a, 
a wonderful writer and her voice is so wonderful to listen to it it's got that east texas lilt she's a uh, she, her use of language is very precise and it adds so much to to what we thought we knew about the johnson presidency it, it just compelled me to stick with her why have you subtitled your book hiding in plain sight um, well, you think that historians who've written about Lyndon Johnson, including Robert Caro, have minimized Lady Bird's role and influence? Or has well, yes, uh, Caro yes. just not gotten to this part of her life because he still hasn't published the fifth volume of his LBJ uh, books? Well, yes and yes. I mean, one, the, the direct answer to your question is that the story has been missed. And, and we have this kind of two-dimensional mythology about Lady Bird as a pretty traditional first lady who was often treated poorly by Lyndon Johnson and who planted flowers. I mean, that's kind of the sum total of it. And the Caro treatment and that of almost every other major historian or journalist that's written about the Johnson White House years. And as you say, we're waiting for the fifth volume. The fourth of Caro's goes through the uh, Civil Rights Act of July of 1964, pretty much sneezes past Lady Bird. And I think that's, so it's about our the difference between who she really was and her influence and the mythology about those two things. But also, what's also hiding in plain sight is the source material. Is that material, even before the library started releasing it fully, had been published in a 1970 volume of about 780 pages not the best stuff to be sure but plenty there for anybody to get a sense by reading it that this was a person of formidable influence on lbj plus there's just so much other material archival material that that fleshes out the case that i'm making so i think it's i think because lbj had as caro does write um you know a history of philandering and of um treating her at times quite poorly in public. Lady Bird's in the public eye more a victim than as somebody with her own agency and influence. Now, and so she she's was, subordinate in the storytelling. She was born Claudia Alta Taylor. Was there a reason that she never changed her childhood nickname? Well, it's stuck. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to why she never changed it. I just know that as she became a, you know, a fully, a fully developed woman and adult, she at times would have preferred to be called, have been called Claudia, uh, her given name, as opposed to Lady Bird, which was such a, uh, it, it, it didn't give the whole of the woman in terms of its, you know, fluffy sound. Mm -hmm. Sounds very Texas. Uh, she was born 1912 and then Five and when she was five years old, her mother died. How did her life change at that point? Well, her mother's well before her mother died. Her mother had given Lady Bird a strong literary boost. She read to her. They played music and listened to music. She was a very cultured and educated woman, and she tried to pass that on to Lady Bird. But the death left Lady Bird not an orphan. She was raised by her father, who to my mind is a sort of Tennessee Williams character. She had two older brothers who were off to boarding school and she wound up spending a great deal of time as she talks about it alone and 
especially finding solace in nature. And she developed a very kind of in the bone sense of the importance of access to nature to make one feel fully human. What do you and mean when you say her father was early. like a Tennessee Williams character? Well, I mean, you know, he was this larger than life southern boss kind of uh you know dominated their their east texas town they lived in a huge mansion called the brick house ladybird was raised in part by her by him by an aunt and by descendants of enslaved people and he just has that kind of feel of of, of a tennessee williams character she received two bachelor's degrees from the University of Texas in Austin in history and journalism. So did she plan to have a professional career? She did. I mean, she I think she was of two minds about it, right? She she was done with her degrees by 1934, and she had dreams of maybe leaving Texas and going to what were not then states, Hawaii or Alaska, to become a teacher. Um, on the other hand, she also thought maybe she would spend her time helping her father, redecorating her house, meet a nice young man and settle down to a privileged lifestyle. And was Lyndon Johnson a nice young man? Uh, they had a rather whirlwind <laughs> courtship. And you said that she left school in 1934. That's the year they, she also, they also got married. How did she meet? Uh, yes. They met, they, uh, they were introduced by a mutual friend, and he at that time was working as a congressional staffer in Washington. And he, um, you know, he has an eye for, had an eye for brilliant, low ego individuals. They met first at the Driscoll Hotel over breakfast in Austin, Texas, spent the day together. By the end of that first date, he asked her to marry him, and she was completely wow. flabbergasted. She thought she, he was absolutely nuts. But she said yes, eventually. Well, yes. Then they had this rapid six-week courtship. And in fact, the, the love letters between the two of them are also now published or uh, at least public. Um, it went by very quickly, and he kind of, at the end of those six weeks, gave her an ultimatum. He said, you know, marry me now or we're done. Sounds mm. very Johnsonian. And mm. uh, she did. And then how soon after that did he wind up in Washington? Well, not long after that, 1937 is his first congressional race. And they moved to Washington, D.C. And um, she... Uh, is, I think, totally taken aback by the world of hmm. Washington politics and how consuming it was to be married to a man of his ambition. But she uh, remained, she continued her connection to Austin. She decided to use her own money to purchase an Austin radio station in 43 and then to expand and buy a television station. Uh, was that uh, an act of independence? You know, she also used her own money, by the way, to finance his first congressional campaign. This is where we start to see the seeds of Lady Bird's ambition, right? She she loves LBJ and she sees that she has a choice, right? Get on board or be extremely unhappy. And they, I think one of the themes that comes out from, from the book and, and more generally is that they have a joint 
political and business enterprise. And they start weaving it together first with the congressional race, but then much more seriously so with the acquisition of KTBC, the radio station. And she starts, I think, as much of a package as LBJ was to be married to, to really enjoy the ways in which he relied on her and stretched her. And so, yes, she puts her family money into the business and then spends years driving back and forth between DC and Austin, keeping the books, bringing that, that business, you know, he trades on his power and influence to get the FCC license, but she's keeping an eagle eye on, on the money side of it and the staffing side of it. So that's the ambition coming to four. The business became somewhat controversial, didn't it? Uh, Didn't Lyndon use his effort, influence in the Senate to pressure the Federal Communications Commission into granting the franchise a monopoly license? Yes, that's what I was just referring to. He absolutely did. And it it was controversial. I'm not saying she's exempt from the controversy. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that she was a participant in this commingled enterprise. So if he was able to strong arm the FCC, that benefited her and benefited them. And Republicans try to embarrass them as a result. Was uh, LBJ involved with running the stations or were they strictly under her control? You know, the here I'll have to credit the research and writing that Caro has done on this matter because it's at a certain point, the answer to your question becomes opaque. The documents that show who did what and the money and the business side of their media uh, enterprises are closed. Mm-hmm. So it's it, I can't give you more than we got from early Wall Street Journal pieces and Caro's reporting himself. And the basic truth is that who had how much influence on one piece of it, I think is hard to mm-hmm. say. But the franchise was so successful that the Johnsons became millionaires many times over. Yes, by I, I'm going to forget the number because I don't retain numbers well. But by the time they come into the White House in 1963, it's a, a multi-million dollar enterprise. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Julia Swig, author of Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight, published by Random House. Uh, This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, um, how how did Lady Bird come to play a significant part in the Johnson political machine beyond what she was doing with radio and television? Well, I think we can go back to World War II to, to answer your question, but I don't want to give you the beat by beat. The short of it is that especially once World War II uh, was upon the country and FDR made the decision to allow members of Congress to enlist, LBJ left Washington for a time, a short time, during which, and he went to the Pacific and to California, Lady Bird ran his congressional office. She Did, did she have this a formal title? Excuse me. No, no, no formal title. Hmm. But, you know, she basically was, for all intents and purposes, the chief of staff. And he kept a very close hold on it, but he was very far away and they worked together. But even before that, she was helping with developing his donor base, servicing constituents, 
traveling around with them when they came to Washington, minding various constituent projects back in Texas. His, um, she, she had a couple of daughters, as you know, in the second part of the 1940s, which complicated and her life in the sense that becoming the consummate political spouse and partner became a lot harder. But by the time he moves into the Senate and becomes Senate, Senate majority leader, especially that status confers to Lady Bird. And she's really the ruler of the roost of Senate spouses, which in Washington at the time and probably still now is is a place where intelligence is gathered and spread and received. And she continues to play an extremely active role on the social side of the LBJ political operation, meaning their evenings are occupied by all kinds of activities, whether at their home or outside. And she's still very much involved in the business in Texas and they acquire the LBJ ranch, which she begins to renovate and develop. On top of that, weren't there times when she ran his congressional office, although she didn't uh, get any uh, title? In yeah, that's what I that? mentioned earlier yeah. on about um, during his service in World War II. Being married to LBJ couldn't have been easy. Wasn't he subject to frequent bouts of depression and insecurities? Well, he's one of that's one of the themes of of both the book and the podcast. And I say the podcast, Leonard, as well, because there the listener is allowed is able to listen to Lady Bird talk about his perennial depression. So he was a person that was insecure and thin-skinned and charismatic and brilliant and suffered from what I think we would characterize today as pretty classic anxiety and depression. And for her, that meant that he really relied on her and that she had to keep herself well and healthy and together in order to be able to help him get out of his funks and to endure those funks when they happened. And then he had a, a heart attack in 1955. Yep. Did he ever fully recover from that? He, he was only 46 at the time. Well, he was a heavy drinker and smoker and had probably made terrible nutritional choices as many Americans did at the time. Um, he did recover from it, but that heart attack almost killed him. And he went back to the ranch for several months to recover afterwards. And it um, represented a really important turning point with them in the sense that afterwards, the two of them were constantly concerned that he would die an early death because of heart failure as his uncles and father had as well. And in fact he did, but, but it, it colors his health. He, he stopped drinking for the most part by the time he was in the white house and smoking for sure. But they lived under constant fear that he might become incapacitated while in the white house or not live to serve a full two terms were he to stay for a second term. Mm -hmm. So that was part of their decision about whether he should run or not. We'll get to that in a little while. Okay. Um, how much did she know about his frequent extramarital affairs and how did she handle it? Well, look, I'm, I assume that she knew a great deal about them and from 
all the the research I've done, what I can tell you is that the the matter of his affairs had, as I said earlier, sort of painted her as essentially his victim. The way she handled it was heavy compartmentalization. There were dalliances that were sexual in nature, which from what I can tell, she did her best to ignore. On the other hand, there were affairs that were serious with women of substance. And in some cases she, and in those cases, she made her best to, did her best to, I think she couldn't help but see why he might've been attracted to them. Um, it's, it's a curious notion because it almost sounds kind of really, really modern, but my take on their marriage of 30 years by the time they get into the White House is that his dependence on her was quite total. She derived an enormous amount of power from the marriage and the political and economic enterprise, and that the philandering was all the piece of that totality. And, and I'll tell you why I that's where I land on this. And yes, I mean, she. so the answer is she was aware of them and she had a way of dealing with them. Um, when, she, when another person was writing her biography in the 1990s, Lady Bird Johnson cut off contact with her, this woman, the biographer, and said, you'll never understand, because, because there was an effort maybe to spend too much time on the affairs and the sex part. Lady Bird said, you'll never understand me if you don't understand how totally intertwined our lives were with one another. So I take my cue from her about how she handled it in terms of the totality of the marriage and what it was to them. And then divorce would have been a real problem for uh, politically because it would have ruined his political career. We didn't. Uh, well, it, we didn't it would have, but I don't know. Who knows if who's who knows? Well, that's for sure. But who knows if divorce was even on the table? Hmm. Well, uh, you you mentioned that some of those women were really. Uh, of people of substance, for example, his affair with Helen Gahagan Douglas, <laughs> pretty famous California congresswoman. Uh, and that was an open secret on Capitol Hill. Yes, it was going on in the 1940s. And then when she ran for Senate in Texas, in, excuse me, in California, Richard Nixon uh, went after her with sort of vicious McCarthyite smear tactics. Um, Lyndon came to her defense while he was in the Senate. She had been very close to the Roosevelts. She was a very famous actress, very brilliant, very beautiful. And Lady Bird has this one episode that she recounts in her diaries in which she wakes up. It's 1964. And she says, Lyndon had loaned my robe and nightgown to Helen Gahagan Douglas. And he took off and went to New York. And we spent the most marvelous morning together. And she's reciting poetry about Helen Gahagan Douglas and talking to her about this compellingly brilliant and beautiful woman. It's kind of stunning, but it's a tell about, about this, this choice she made to see some of them and ignore the others. Well, why do you think Lady Bird included that story when she usually kept quiet about his infidelities? Well, like I said, I think hmm. it's her way of, look at these diaries, these tapes were her awareness of her participation and importance in Johnson presidential history. And that's why I say it's a little confounding. It sounds kind of weirdly modern for a woman who was born in the 
early part of the 20th century. I think she was telling us that she had the capacity to metabolize complexity generally and in dealing with LBJ. What was her relationship with Jacqueline Kennedy like when Jackie was first lady and she was a second lady? Because these two women were very different. Well, they were very different, but in a sense, you know, that difference, their relationship goes back to the 1950s when the Johnsons were majority leader and the Kennedys were younger and newer to Washington, first to the House and then Jack in the Senate. When Lady Bird, with her seniority, tries to bring Jackie in and help her get into the groove of being a Senate spouse, which is not Jackie's thing so much. Um, however, when the script flips and the Johnsons join the Kennedy ticket in 1960, now as VP, Lady Bird basically makes herself indispensable to Jackie, both on the campaign trail as Jackie's surrogate, campaigning all over the country and all over Texas with Jackie's sisters-in-law and mother-in-law, winning Texas, as Bobby Kennedy said, for the Kennedy ticket. And then as second lady also, when Jackie is not as enthralled by the rope line and the ceremonial and all of the other duties of first lady and asks Lady Bird to step in. And Lady Bird does very, very often. Um, they have a kind of intimate understanding of one another. And again, sort of belying the mythology, which says that there was just, it was all tension and all um, disdain Kennedy to Johnson. What I found in the documents that I read in the Kennedy Library and the Johnson Library was a, a far more intimate and amicable dynamic when Lady Bird was second lady and Jackie first lady. But then came two assassinations, uh, first uh, JFK and then Robert Kennedy, uh, and that affected their relationship as well. Well, those well of course did. it did. Well, I mean, the, the first assassination, that of, of JFK, and here I should say again, referencing the podcast, the very first LBJ tape, the other LBJ tape, Lady Bird's tape, the first audio diary entry she makes, she records eight days after November 22nd, 1963. And it's after a beat JFK by beat, correct, beat by beat, very dramatic, very poignant, very emotional description of that day. And the 14 day transition thereafter from the assassination until the day Jackie moves out of the White House with her kids and the Johnsons move in. And what you see, what you hear is a kind of excruciatingly careful and sensitive transition that Jackie and Lady Bird together orchestrate. Um, Why do you think she switched to doing audio diaries uh, rather than writing uh, in a writing out the diary uh, how different were they? Well, no, there was no switch. She started as an audio diary from the get-go. Uh -huh. She was a, a consummate note-taker. She took notes in Greg's shorthand, and she always had these little uh, spiral notebooks with her, including on Air Force One coming back from Dallas to Washington. She's making notations that she then uses for her audio recording. But, you know, she's a modern media woman. This is she thought of herself as a media executive. And after all, she was. 
So the record, the idea of recording was, was a, a very modern take. And also because, you know, the word diary, it's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, dear diary today, it's kind of a feminized idea. These were tapes. This was her record of her experience in the White House. And she amassed all kinds of material and she would sit with it. LBJ's daily diary, her daily diary, that's the technical term for their schedule. Memos, guest lists, sometimes eye glazing and not so interesting, but some press clips of the day. But but that question about why did she switch, it wasn't that she switched, it's that she understood the power of audio. Well, along those lines, you suggested that people also listen to your podcast, which is called In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, do you recommend listening to the podcast before or after we read the book? <laughs> well, some people do both. And I wouldn't want to dissuade people from reading the book, but I would just say that this is a two-part multimedia effort to show the totality of her and her story. And so what you can't bring to life in a book is the way she sounded. And of course, the podcast is also full of contemporaneous archival material from the time. So it's more like an audio documentary. I'll leave it to to listeners to choose and recommend both. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. skies kissed the sun touched the moon but he left me much too soon his ladybird he left his ladybird well we haven't left <laughs> julia swag whose latest book is called ladybird johnson hiding in plain sight it's published by random house uh she's also the author of Friendly Fire, Losing Friends and Making Enemies in the uh, Anti-American Century, and Inside the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro and the Urban Underground. And uh, as we've been uh, pointing out, she's also the host of a new eight-episode podcast produced with ABC News called In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. Now, uh, He, despite his popularity with the public, why was LBJ ambivalent about running for a full term in 1964? My sense of him was that he was a very ambitious man. Well, he was ambitious, but I think that, again, sort of complexity is the the word of the day on, on the Johnsons. He was ambitious, but he had a lot of doubt about his ability, even if he were to win and and win well in 1964 to then keep the country unified over the period of time that would become his first term. And that was for two reasons. I mean, one is in 19, early 1964, there were already 16,000 American troops in Vietnam. We call them advisors. There were already 300 Americans dead there. He did not. And so Vietnam to him and to both of them was, something that stood there as the, this potentially derailing piece of, of, of the presidency that could derail their domestic agenda. 
which was very progressive and very ambitious to use your word. So I think he, he doubted his ability to figure out Vietnam and he sure was right about that. Um, the second is that the awareness of his um, being from the South, not having the, the elan of the Northern elite that the Kennedys had being derided constantly in what we would call say the mainstream press and his own personality of the combination of insecurity and ambition, it all added up to, and also just the feeling of coming to office illegitimately, or at least um, in a way that didn't allow him to, to win a proper election, if not illegitimately through assassination. It all added up to doubt over whether he was really the right person to, to be in office in, in the wake of Kennedy's assassination. So did he turn to his wife for advice about the decision? Because uh, you, so you have a, a lot wife. about the strategy yeah. memos that she wrote for him, laying out the pros and cons. Yes. And this, um, this document that you're referring to, Leonard, which I took the liberty of renaming and calling it the Huntland Strategy Memo, was sitting in the LBJ library for years in a file called Letters, Mrs. Johnson to Lyndon Johnson or to President Johnson. And it's a, a nine-page handwritten document that precisely does what you said. It lays out the pros and cons of running or not running. It also includes a statement that Lady Bird wrote, which is the, which Lyndon would read to the public to say that he was getting out of politics so that he would feel, he would hear himself and feel what it would feel like to get out of the arena. In 64, he asked her in May of 64, at a time when civil rights was stuck in the Congress, when the war on poverty legislation hadn't passed, McNamara was coming back from his fifth trip to Vietnam and pushing LBJ to escalate. He says, well, what do you think? Please write this out for me. And she does. And what's so significant in it, well, there are many pieces that are significant, but the key thing is this. She says, you know, you're too young to get out of politics. I don't want you to go back to the ranch. You'll be at a loss and I'll have to deal with that. And I don't want that. <laughs> um, but she says, but also what you should do is run and you'll very likely win. And then in February or March of 1968, you can announce to the world that you won't be running for a second term. And that is precisely what happens. Although when they announce it in March, on March 31st, 1968, everybody but the two of them are completely taken aback because as you say, they think of LBJ as this endlessly ambitious man and what president would walk away from power? What person would walk away from the power of the presidency? But but that was the plan. And, and you see and one hears and reads in the transcripts or listens and, and tracks that against everything else that was happening, that that strategy was something she worked to execute from the day he was elected and inaugurated then at, and stepping up most especially by the end of 1967 when Lady Bird pushes for LBJ to come up with a date certain when he's going to make the statement that he won't run again. Now, during his first year in, in office, LBJ had no vice president. Haven't some suggested that Lady Bird kind of filled that role for him? Well, some could be me. I mean, I, <laughs> I, um, we, 
we stumbled across some some really fun uh, news clips from 1964 when she goes on one of her poverty tours to Kentucky, where the local press refer to her as Mrs. Vice President. Somewhat jokingly, a bit tongue in cheek, but the press corps also covering her, the National Press Corps traveling with her, they see that, in fact, Lady Bird is standing in as LBJ's surrogate in lots of ways that a vice president would. And so they call her Mrs. Vice President. Lady Bird laughs it off, but she does show up in so many ways in that role. So it's a, it's a metaphor. It's not literal. Could that situation happen again? Doesn't the 25th amendment provide for a clearer line of succession? Yes, but that did not uh, pass. That had not yet passed in 1964. Now, when she was uh, campaigning for him in 64, uh, she made a solo campaign train trip with uh, stops in eight southern states, and didn't many Southerners express their displeasure with LBJ's civil rights policies by protesting her speeches, uh, including well, yes. uh, da- bomb threats? Sounds she, like all, today. All of the above. She was a Southerner. You know, she was not just a Texan, but she had grown up also spending her summers, as she says, 25 miles from the Edmund Pettus Bridge in her family's home, her mother's side of the family, and in uh, Alabama, she deeply understood the potential for the a white backlash against LBJ, against the Democratic Party, and certainly against civil rights legislation. But she didn't want, you know, LBJ famously tells Bill Moyers after the Civil Rights Act passes, I think we've just lost the South for my lifetime and yours. And he was mm-hmm. onto something there. But Bird, as he called her, didn't want to lose the South by default. So she decided, along with her chief of staff, Liz Carpenter and LBJ, although against the recommendation of LBJ's own people, some of whom were Kennedy holdovers, to go to the South. And after the convention in uh, Atlantic City in August of 68, she goes and she campaigns in the West. And then in October, she spends four days 47 stops, eight states of the South campaigning for his reelection and for the new South and for the uh, people in the South to embrace the civil rights ethos that her husband was trying to push through. And she got death threats. Yeah, she got death threats. You mentioned her chief of staff. Wasn't she the first uh, first lady to have a press secretary and a chief of staff of her own? Now, after that, everyone has had one or two. Yes, and that's, I mean, Liz Carpenter is really key. And, and she was herself a journalist who met Lady Bird when she, Liz, came to Washington on a high school trip when Lady Bird was working, running the congressional office of, of Lyndon. And uh, Carpenter, who was also, as I said, a Texan, started covering Eleanor as a cub reporter at those teas that Eleanor Roosevelt used to have for the female press corps. She was one of the only people, maybe other than Lady Bird, in the White House who had the clout and standing to to speak truth to LBJ. And she was really the bridge 
who with Ladybird knit together the East Wing and the West Wing as a political operation. And having a chief of staff and a press team and a policy team was were innovations that make Ladybird very unique and were have not, I think, been properly credited to her in terms of modernizing the office of the first lady. Now, LBJ's uh, political legacy is split. Uh, there are uh, on on the the right, there were people who objected to his civil rights policies, and on the left, there were people who objected to the uh, growing involvement in the Vietnam War. Where did she stand on both of those? Well, on civil rights, as we were just talking about, you know, she kind of understood in her bones that leveling the racial playing field in this country was an essential part of the great society and an essential need to to make true on our claims to democracy. Um, she was all in on civil rights. On Vietnam, but, she had, yes. No, go, finish. I was going to say on Vietnam, she really had the blinders that LBJ did, which is to say three points. One, she really bought into the geopolitics of the Cold War and in the wake of World War II, really believed that one doesn't betray an ally as corrupt as they might be. So that notion of leaving Saigon to the communists was something that was unthinkable. I mean, that, that wasn't ideology to her. That was truth. Second, LBJ had been essential in the development of bringing electricity to Texans, to poor Texans. And so they had this kind of Wilsonian idealism, Leonard, which was, wow, if we can do that in Texas, why not in the Mekong de Delta? It's that American exceptionalism that they were really steeped in. And, and, and third and is that they were really insecure about on foreign policy grounds and didn't and know how to not escalate. <laughs> But also she wanted to uh, bring those ideas to Washington, D.C., a very segregated city. And she did interesting things. She uh, worked with a landscape architect, Lawrence Halperin, to develop a large public recre recreation space aimed more for D.C. residents than for tourists. And uh, she also, but in order to build that, uh, a proposed D.C. highway project would have had to have been rerouted. And she worked behind the scenes to oppose that. Yes, I mean, she had her her environmental ambition and the complexity of it was, I think, totally underestimated because it was called beautification. But behind that, as you said, was an attempt to knit together civil rights, access to nature, what we would think of today as environmental justice, not just on the highways and not just with flowers along the parkways, all of which is gorgeous and important, but in American cities and in communities of color that had been most victimized and damaged by new highway construction from the federal highway bills that had passed in the 50s and from urban renewal. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Julia Swig, S-W-E-I-G. Her latest book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight, published by Random House. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. She didn't like the word beautification, did she? 
No, I mean, how could she? It was a euphemism and it was like her own name, sort of prissy sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, you know, she's got this line I found her set to have said when she was an older woman in her 1980s and partially blind. She was speaking to a notable environmental writer, nature writer, activist, Terry Temple Williams. Terry Temple Williams was in Austin at a spa on a book tour. And it was one of those arrangements where if you come and speak and give a book talk, you can come stay at our spa for a couple of days. So she tells the story about going to give her a book talk and there's only two women in the audience and they're sitting there in their robes and on their wheelchairs. And she gives her talks and she realizes that one of them is Lady Bird Johnson and the other one is, to, is Liz Carpenter. The Lady Bird listens to her and listens to her and gives her her critique of the way she, Terry, is using language to describe nature, to inspire people to want to protect it. And Lady Bird diverges and says, I'll never forgive Lyndon's boys for making me call my environmental agenda beautification. <laughs> but I did it. I did it because I thought if people appreciated the flowers, they would come to appreciate and want to protect the land that grew up. So, so the beautification euphemism was about politics and it was about the sense of where public consciousness was around the environment. But she instructed her staff starting in about 1967 to tell everyone to stop using that word. And she started just talking about what she really meant, which was this connection between mental health and access to nature and jobs and housing um, for communities most hit by the inequalities in American cities. And some of her goals uh, weren't accomplished uh, during LBJ's term. Uh, Richard Nixon, for example, established the EPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Uh, Some other things came even later, although we're still fighting over global warming and uh, some of the things that would have concerned her. Um, as, as the first lady during the beginning of the women's liberation movement and as a mother of two daughters, how did she encourage women to pursue their own careers? She, uh, you know, again, back to sort of the, the two dimensionality of Lady Bird, I would have been surprised if you had told me when I started this to, to learn about her, that she was any kind of a feminist, but she had a kind of unmistakable feminism and again sort of in that period of 1964 when we refer to her as mrs vice president at that same time she makes an effort to show and elevate the importance of women as professionals she hosts a series of luncheons at the white house they're called doers luncheons she brings jane jacobs one of the premier urban activists at the time. She brings Barbara Solomon, who is one of the founders of the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe to talk about the importance of documenting one's experiences. And she makes a number of speeches also in 1964, which are very uh, feminist in their ethos, but they kind of don't get noticed because they're delivered with this cloak of Southern ladies subterfuge. Now, she had an exchange with Eartha Kitt about the war, uh, which um, is not one of the nicer moments in her life. Oh, it's the worst moment of the White House years, I think. Can you tell Eartha us a bit Kitt about it? Is, yes, of course. 
it becomes the second to the last doer's luncheon of the White House, uh, of Lady Bird's White House time. By January of 1968, which is when it takes place, the White House is now under an enormous amount of pressure. There's protests on American campuses over Vietnam in the streets. There are uprisings by Black communities in 300 cities around the country over the course of three years over police brutality and lack of housing and general discriminatory conditions. And there's a lot of pressure going into the 1960 election season on LBJ to become a kind of law and order president. And he's putting forth a new crime bill, a crime bill that in fact, many people trace back to many of the worst incursions of police uh, departments around the country today. But in any case, Lady Bird hosts a discussion called Crime in Our Streets. And she wants to put the East Wing's pol uh, political outreach behind passage of that law that Lyndon is pr promoting in Congress. So she invites a bunch of people to come and speak and others to participate in the discussion, one of whom is Eartha Kitt. And Eartha Kitt at the time is starring as Catwoman in Bat Batman. She's a world famous dancer, performer, singer. And she's also, and pe many people don't know this about her, she's also an activist. She's been working with youth empowerment groups in Watts and also in Anacostia. She's testified in Congress about it. And she comes to about, about kids and, and kids of color, especially, and, and the conditions they face in growing up and the conditions they would need to grow up in better circumstances. And so she comes to the White House as Lady Bird's guest and does the unconscionable thing of first when Lyndon comes, she, as he's leaving, she comes by to say hello. And as he's leaving, she stands up and stops him and she asks him a question. And this is a violation of protocol and choreography for a white house event, but he handles it just fine. Then, however, during the Q and a of the discussion among the ladies, Lady Bird calls on Eartha and Eartha stands up and gives a very long statement, which is kind of all over the place. But the gist of it is she brings Vietnam into the discussion. She says, you want to understand why people are committing crimes, why they're protesting, why they're in the streets. It's because of Vietnam. They'd rather go to jail at home. Well, they'll get a square meal than be sent off to war to die. And she really tries to bring together what's happening in American streets with the war abroad and the, uh, the, the controversy that ensues afterward is very much fed by the White House spin machine, and it winds up damaging her Eartha Kitt's career for decades to come. Now, we're pretty much out of time, but I do want to point out that when Lady Bird uh, addressed the graduating class at Williams College, people walked out before she could give the speech. So there was an awful lot of opposition. Uh, Bobby Kennedy became a prominent public critic of uh, the, the war as well. Uh, and then uh, LBJ died just a few years after uh, he left office. Um, did she remain active in some in many of the causes that had interested her? I think it was that experience at Williams that finally turned the worm for her in terms of seeing definitively that the Vietnam War had made their presidency unsustainable, by the way. Um, 
just to jump ahead then, she Very continued quickly. with her environmentalism in Texas and in Austin is the short answer. And how can people access your podcast? Is it Anywhere people listen to podcasts, Apple or iHeartRadio. I think it's on every platform. Spotify, Maybe not iHeart, but definitely Spotify. Um, you can listen to it there. In plain and sight, thank Lady you for Bird talking Johnson. with us today on WBAI. Julia Swig, her latest book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight, published by Random House. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Have a great day. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you would like to hear more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our more than 500 past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, uh, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. And uh, consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. We need your help to, to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content because WBAI is sponsored 100% by listener donations. So please step up right now by going uh, online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air by making a tax-deductible donation. And I'm sure you can understand the station needs your help now more than ever after all of what's happened over the past year. So to everyone who has already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we thank you very much. And uh, I'm counting on many more to join them and become members as well. And I hope you can join us again on Monday for our show when uh, Gabrielle Bluestone will be our guest. She's a former vice reporter and executive producer of the Netflix documentary Fire. And she will be discussing her new book, Hype, How Scammers, Grifters, and Con Artists Are Taking Over the Internet. Have a great weekend.